Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello? Aaron, it's Luke Bronner again. Luke Bronner, thank you for telling me your yeah, last name. I, I never know. Hey, so I called you last week and you totally screwed my call up. I wanted to know <laughs> yeah, 30 sorry. years ago at this point, of all of the possessions that you had at eight, almost nine years old, what is the possession you were least likely to be willing to share with other people? You know, you've given me a week to think about this, and I have not thought about it at all. Um, the worst. I think, <laughs> I think probably when I was turning nine years old, I had some action figures from Police Academy. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing! Which I I loved. They had it came with like the police station, and it was incredible. There was like all these like gags in the police station. It was super fun. I think if I had to pick one. I was a stuffed animal kid, you know, like I loved yeah. stuffed animals, but I had one particular stuffed dog named Muffy. Muffy. Yeah. Yes. So now that's out that's there. That's amazing. <laughs> anyway, hey, I'm going to start the well, episode, but we'll. Okay. Well, I'll toss one back for Muffy. Okay. <laughs> or whatever. That had to be on your list of like sentences you never expect to speak in your life. I'll toss one back I'm, for I'm Muffy. I'm using it again. I'm using it again someday. I <laughs> okay, love it. I'm hanging up on you now. I'll see you later. All right. See ya. From Mill You Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 3, Episode 23, Secret Verses, Subtle Jabs, and a Jetpack. Today, we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, June 22nd, 1991. Hello, friends, and thank you, as always, for joining me here on 30 Pop. It's a joy each week to gather together and spend a few minutes remembering the world as we once knew it. The good, the bad, and perhaps not quite as much of the ugly. Relative to the rest of summer 1991, we have a pretty light week this week, although there's still plenty upon which to reminisce, so let's jump in. In sports news this week in 1991, specifically on Monday, June 17th, in a tie-breaking playoff bonus round of the U.S. Open, golf legend Payne Stewart beat former Open champion Scott Simpson by two strokes, each of them playing their worst round of the tournament. The two strokes that ultimately won the tournament came on the very last two holes, each of which saw Simpson shooting a bogey. In fact, he bogeyed the last three holes, and Stewart birdied one and shot par for the other two, making for a last-minute lead steal and tournament win. That was the second of Stewart's three career major championship wins. His next and final major championship win would happen eight years later, in 1999, just a few months before his tragic passing in a freak airplane accident. In music, we saw a couple of repeat chart toppers. Paula Abdul with the top song on the Billboard Hot 100 with her way overrated, at least in my opinion, Rush Rush. This was her second of five consecutive weeks at number one, which I can only attribute to her featuring Keanu Reeves in the music video for the song. 
The song by itself, if you set aside any nostalgic familiarity you may have with it, is honestly not that good, no matter what the charts may show. In fact, I can think of at least three songs that debuted on the chart this week in 1991 that would have been far more deserving of that number one spot, if it were based entirely on my musical preferences as opposed to factual radio airplay data from across the country. Those debuts were High Five with I Can't Wait Another Minute, a song I can't wait to discuss on the show come August, Crazy by Seal, which inexplicably only ever peaked at number seven on the chart, and Hard to Handle by the Black Crows, which had been on the chart previously, peaking at number 45, but was making a second debut, and would peak this time at number 26. At number one on the hot R&B and hip-hop chart for the second and last week was Luther Vandross with Power of Love, Love Power, which we discussed on last week's episode. New to the top of the hot rap chart was rap legend Cool Mo D featuring rap legend KRS-One and rap legend Chuck D with the single Rise and Shine. If I'm not mistaken, this was the final single of Cool Modi's career. It was definitely the last of three singles released from his album Funky Funky Wisdom, which, as I mentioned a week or two back, marked the end of his cultural relevance. Modi was becoming increasingly a symbol for, quote, old-school hip-hop. The new school had arrived and was very quickly gaining traction, which we'll get into more in just a moment. One more thing about this album, though, which I'm both amazed and disappointed I failed to call out in last week's episode— the title, Funky Funky Wisdom. For reasons I cannot discern, Cool Modi spelled funky F-U-N-K-E, like Funke, as in Tobias Funke, the quirky analropist from Arrested Development, the single greatest sitcom ever written. Granted, this was a full 12 years before Arrested Development would air, and the two have nothing whatsoever to do with each other, but regardless, I will henceforth refer to this album exclusively as Funke Funke Wisdom. Moving on. The other new number one single this week in 1991 at the top of the hot country chart for the first of two weeks was Garth Brooks's The Thunder Rolls, of which I will not share a sample for fear of a massive lawsuit by Brooks's overly eager stable of attorneys. To be clear, I have no idea if they exist outside my imagination, but as I've mentioned before, based on his long resistance to the digital music marketplace and the fact that it's all but impossible to even find pirated copies of his music on YouTube, I feel confident that those attorneys and their eagerness are both very, very real. The Thunder Rolls was the fourth and final single of Brooks's 18-time platinum-selling sophomore album, No Fences. 18 million copies of the album shipped and sold in the U.S. alone. Nearly two times diamond. So impressive. This song was originally written by Brooks and a co-writer for Tanya Tucker, who recorded it in 1988 but never released it. Brooks decided somewhat last minute to record it for No Fences and invited his co-writer, Pat Alger, to play acoustic guitar on it. Supposedly, they each recorded their parts in a single take with no overdubs, which is practically unheard of and so impressive. By the time this single reached number one, it had already been the source of several weeks' worth of controversy. The song touches on themes of marital infidelity and domestic violence, and in an unreleased but oft-performed fourth and final verse, the song's cheating, abusive villain is shot and killed by the wife he's so mistreated. Although this verse isn't included, it is alluded to in the music video for the song. 
a video that was at first praised by the NTV of Country Music, CMT, then almost immediately banned by that network as well as TNN, the Nashville network. They claimed the ban was because they were only in business to entertain, not to condone gratuitous violence or social issues, as though Brooks had written the song to promote infidelity and domestic violence rather than condemn them. It was a clumsy and ill-considered move on the part of the networks, but it did little to diminish the song or the music video's success, as it went on to be nominated for a Grammy for Music Video of the Year and win the CMA's Video of the Year Award. Tanya Tucker would release her version in 1995, including the fourth verse, and heavy metal band All That Remains would release a weird guitar-shredding cover of it, omitting the fourth verse in 2017, to surprising acclaim considering how truly, truly, truly awful it is at least compared to the original. The number one album in the country this week in 1991 was the second and final LP by gangster rap pioneers N.W.A., the title of which I'll let you Google yourself. I'll refer to it simply as N4L. N4L debuted on the Billboard 200 chart 30 years ago last week in the number two spot, but quickly rose to the top. The Source magazine ranked this album at number one on their list of the top 15 albums of 1991, and in 2005, MTV ranked it at number seven in their greatest hip-hop albums of all time list. This, despite its deeply misogynistic and controversial lyrical content, and despite the group having lost, arguably, their most talented member, Ice Cube. All due respect to Dr. Dre, I did say arguably. Despite the album's success achieving platinum certification, the group disbanded later in the year to pursue their respective solo careers. Even still, now, 30 years later, on just about any list of the greatest rap groups of all time, N.W.A. is listed in one of the top three spots, alongside OutKast and Wu-Tang Clan, with almost no exceptions. Another group who may not appear on those lists, but who I remember liking regardless, was the Queens-based hip-hop trio Third Base. On June 18, 1991, their gold-certified second and final studio album, Derelicts of Dialect, released. It contained the most successful single of their career, ironically, Pop Goes the Weasel. Pop, pop goes the weasel, the weasel. Pop, pop goes the weasel, the weasel. Pop, pop goes the weasel, the weasel. Pop goes the weasel, cause the weasel goes pop. Pop, pop goes the weasel, the weasel. Pop, pop goes the weasel, the weasel. Pop, pop goes the weasel, the weasel. Ironic, because it, like so much of their music, is about the way mainstream rap artists like Vanilla Ice were a joke, ruining the genre. In fact, that song was aimed specifically at Ice, despite not ever mentioning him by name. The group refused to even mention him by name in interviews, so as to avoid contributing in any way to his fame. Of all the subtle-ish shots this song takes at Ice, though, here's my favorite. Vanilla Ice's most famous song, by, like, a long shot, Ice Ice Baby, was at the center of a very public lawsuit at this point. The song samples the bass line from Queen and David Bowie's Under Pressure, despite claims by Ice that the bass lines are simply similar. The sample was used without clearance, and the lawsuit resulted in Bowie and each of the members of Queen being granted songwriting credits for Ice Ice Baby. That may sound like a petty consolation, but rest assured it isn't. Publishing is where the real money is made in music. I'm confident they each still make significantly more money than I do each year off that songwriting credit alone. Anyway, as I was saying, my favorite subtle shot in Pop Goes the Weasel is that it samples a lot of different songs, and all the samples are properly legally cleared. They supposedly wanted to work as many cleared samples in as possible as a non-lyrical jab at the pop star. So clever. I love it.
Also new to the shelves of your favorite music store this week in 1991 was the triple platinum-selling Grammy Award-winning ninth studio album from rock band Van Halen, entitled For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, a phrase that means, well, nothing, but which was chosen solely for its acronym, F-U-C-K. This album marked the band's return to their hard rock roots, or at least in theory. Despite the album's commercial success and Recording Academy accolades, it was not well-received critically. Rolling Stone gave it two out of five stars. Critic Robert Criscow called the album a dud. An Entertainment Weekly critic, Gina Arnold, gave the album a C alongside a scathing but well-written review. She said, quote, It would be nice to believe that the acronym formed by the title of Van Halen's new top-charting album was intended as a covert blow against censorship in America. Unfortunately, it's far more likely that the punny name merely indicates Van Halen's love of the kind of bathroom talk that third graders think is funny. For unlawful carnal knowledge doesn't contain even one mind-numbingly catchy melody. Only Top of the World and The Dream is Over come close to working up a truly fist-thrusting chorus, and the gist of the latter, Dream Another Dream, This Dream is Over, may well be advice that Van Halen and their fans ought to take to heart. End quote. I think it's fair to say this album stands as a sort of last vestige of the tight-pantsed shampoo commercial party rock that had prevailed since the late 70s. Within weeks of this album's release, we'd get the debut album from Pearl Jam, the seminal work from Metallica, the wildly experimental first record from Mr. Bungle, as well as the throwback Roots Rock debut from Spin Doctors. Plus, massive new albums from Soundgarden, Hole, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Nirvana. The rock and roll landscape was changing, and similar to the changes we were seeing across the rap genre, it was becoming quite a bit darker. Where hip-hop was becoming more violent, though, rock music was becoming more depressed and angsty, more emotional and, I think, honest. This wasn't brand new. We'd already been introduced to Smashing Pumpkins, R.E.M., and Nirvana, but there was a definite changing of the guard happening over these next few months, and I couldn't be happier to cover it. For my personal musical tastes, we're just about to get to the really good stuff. I couldn't name five Van Halen songs without Googling if my life depended on it. And while at this point in 1991, I was still a few years away from discovering a love for rock music, this was the music that would reveal that love for me. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, etc. We've got much to look forward to musically over the next few years, friends. In Hollywood this week in 1991, for the second and final week, the top film at the box office was Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Deservingly so. I loved this movie so, so, so much. And as I mentioned on the last episode, rewatching it 30 years later, I love it no less today. It is very good. But it was not the only option in theaters 30 years ago this week. We also saw a couple new releases on June 21st, 1991 one of which was the Julia Roberts tearjerker, Dying Young. Hillary O'Neill had little experience and a lot of possibility. I'm answering the ad. Do you know anything about chemotherapy? Well, I need help during it. So why would you pick me? I got it. I had the shortest skirt, huh? Oh, actually, uh, no, there was one with a shorter skirt. But he was never a candy striper. <laughs> Victor had all life could offer. Except the one thing he needed. I don't think I can deal with this. I'm not going to die. I'm going to recover. But I can't do it without help. I can't do it without you. For them, the best medicine in life is knowing that there's hope. We deserve an adventure. Why don't you drive? No, please don't do that. Hillary! <laughs> 
Expectations for this movie were pretty high. The actual critical response to it left much to be desired. Notable critic Roger Ebert described it as a long, slow slog of a movie up to its knees in drippy self-pity as it marches wearily toward its inevitable ending. However, commercially it did fare quite a bit better, with a worldwide gross of over $80 million on a relatively minimal $18 million budget. Plus, Julia Roberts was nominated for the MTV Movie Award for Most Desirable Female alongside Tia Carrere, Kim Basinger, and Christina Applegate, although they all lost out inexplicably to Linda Hamilton for her performance as Sarah Connor in Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which I'm very excited to discuss on the show very soon. The movie, not the award, which, let's be honest, shouldn't exist. What actor wants to be recognized for their desirability rather than their talent? Probably only those who lack the talent to be nominated otherwise. And Julia Roberts definitely does not fall into that category. Also new in theaters this week in 1991 was one of my very, very, very favorite movies of the year, starring Billy Campbell and the lovely Jennifer Connelly, the Walt Disney Pictures superhero adventure, The Rocketeer. To some, it was the fulfillment of a dream. To others, it was an instrument of destruction. A creation that could change the course of history. It was stolen from my factory. This is the FBI. What do we tell the president? Tell me exactly why this merchandise is so important to the feds. It's a rocket. A rocket? What? What's the matter? I don't know. There's something under the seat. Oh, my. What are we doing here? What are you supposed to do? Is it a bomb or something? No. I wouldn't touch that if I were you. How do I look? Like a hood ornament. Stand clear. What was that? A flying man! Big gopher. Ah! Are you trying to kill yourself? I like it. Uh-oh, we got company. You steer, I'll push. You what? I will not rocket, Eddie. Not next week, not tomorrow. Now. Keep your eyes open for this dame. Jenny's in trouble. <laughs> They're working for a Nazi agent. With an army equipped with these, you could rule the world. Cliff, 
You touch one hair on her head, I swear I'll... <laughs> Shoot him! We've got the girl. The rocket will come to us. I love her, Peeve. Does she know that? She's gonna find out. Let him have it! Hand over the rocket! The Rocketeer. Go get him, kid. I'm positive I saw this in theaters as an 11-year-old and loved it. But to be honest, I'm not sure I'd ever seen it again after that until I rewatched it this past week. As is often the case on this show, I had very low expectations for how this one would have held up over the last three decades, but to my delight, I still thoroughly enjoyed it. And at least as far as I can tell, that wasn't just for the nostalgia. Scene to scene, I remembered very little about this one at all and felt, for the most part, like I was seeing it for the very first time. And again thoroughly enjoyed it regardless. While it was commercially successful, it didn't just blow anyone away in the Disney accounting department. It cost about $35 million to produce and saw a return of just under $47 million. It was also the source of a fair amount of debate among Walt Disney Studios executives. Many of them wanted the role of the film's hero, Cliff, to go to an A-list actor. Among those considered for the role were Kevin Costner, Matthew Modine, Michael Keaton, Alec Baldwin, Robin Williams, believe it or not, Mel Gibson, Harrison Ford, Ron Perlman, oddly, and Tom Hanks. Several others went so far as to audition for the part, including Emilio Estevez, Bill Paxton, Dennis Quaid, and Kurt Russell, several of whom would have fit pretty well, actually. And, once again, unsurprisingly, the role almost went to Johnny Depp, like virtually every other role at the time. The part was initially offered to, but turned down by Vincent D'Onofrio before the debate was ended and the role given to relatively unknown TV actor Billy Campbell. A perfect choice, in my opinion. Campbell had played a couple of recurring roles on TV dramas prior to landing the Rocketeer and was actually the second choice for the part of Lieutenant Riker on Star Trek The Next Generation, but he wasn't exactly a household name. Actually, he's probably still not really a household name, despite a long-running, very successful acting career and a fair amount of respect throughout the industry. Anyway, as of this recording, The Rocketeer is available to stream on Disney+. If you're a subscriber, I highly recommend revisiting it soon. I'm confident you'll enjoy it just as much as you did 30 years ago. I think that's it for this week, friends. Join me again next week for a fun look back at a very funny, very stupid movie that I remember loving way too much. Until then, remember... Acting is acting like you're not acting. So act, but don't act like you're acting. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. 